we're on sort of a 300-year time frame right now for decarbonizing buildings, and we have about 30, like honestly, right? So, so what we really need is you know more Allens and more DRs uh, tackling this problem so that we can reach those customers in the moment in which they're ready to make that replacement and make sure that they're opting for the lower carbon option. Hey friends, if you like the Nexus podcast, the best way to continue the learning is to join our community. There are three ways to do that. First, you can join the Nexus Pro membership. It's our global community of smart building professionals. We have monthly events, paywall deep dive content, and a private chat room, and it's just $35 a month. Second, you can upgrade from the Pro membership to our courses offering. It's headlined by our flagship course, The Smart Building Strategist. And we're building a catalog of courses taught by world-leading experts on each topic under the Smart Buildings umbrella. Third, and finally, our marketplace is how we connect leading vendors with buyers looking for their solutions. The links are below in the show notes. And now let's go on to the podcast. All right, welcome to the Nexus Podcast. This is the latest episode in our series diving into case studies of real-life deployments of smart building, and in this case, decarbonization technologies. Today, we have a story coming from the Watt Carbon Marketplace, and we've heard from McGee Young, co-founder and CEO of Watt Carbon in the past. He's now back with a few of his friends here. We have Alan Greensberg, a seasoned investor, developer, and manager of real estate with a passion and sort of history of incorporating technology and sustainability into his development. Developments. Alan's here to share the story of how his firm purchased carbon offsets on the Walt Carbon Marketplace. We also have DR Richardson, co-founder of Elephant Energy. DR is here to tell the story of where Alan's money goes once the offsets are purchased. So let's start with you, Alan. Can you um, tell us a little bit of your background? Sure. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for including me for today. Uh, my background is from a real estate family. Got involved in our business uh, in my early 20s. Later on, um, one of my responsibilities in uh, 1998, I took over management of our 15,000 rental units uh, based here in Ontario, between Toronto and Ottawa. Uh, and I quickly um, understood that uh, there was a malaise in our company and across the industry um, in that we were consuming resources and everybody just paid the utility bills. In fact, uh, to get the 2% discount, because in those days it used to be 210 net 30, we had 32 people that were authorized to sign a utility check so we could get the 2% discount if we paid it quickly. Well, when I took over responsibility, they told me it was a non-controllable expense. And I came back the next day, we went through the P&L again, consolidated P&L, and again they told me that utilities were a non-controllable expense. And I said, I don't agree. I don't accept that. We have to be able to control our utility spend. So over the course of uh, the next six to 12 months, put together a team called the Minto Green Team, and uh, I developed a concept called a comprehensive natural resource management plan. And it was simple. We had an addiction to consuming utilities and other natural resources. And we just bought them. We just spent. We did it. So... Anytime you have an addiction, first you have to learn about your addiction before you can cure that addiction. So it was an awareness program. When were we consuming resources in our buildings? When were we consuming resources in our office? And I realized that we were wasting a lot. 
I didn't know how to solve the problem, but I knew we were wasting a lot. And it really came down to a mathematical equation. What's the cost of consuming a natural resource? What's the cost of reducing that spend? And what's the economic return? And I use two simple examples. Number one is we all have chargers for our electric toothbrushes. I, I brush my teeth every day. But I don't leave it plugged into the wall. I unplug it. And every three nights, every third night, I plug it in, I charge it overnight. And then I use it for three days and then I charge again. And the second little pet peeve I have is chargers for all of our phones. We leave them plugged in the wall. When my kids come over and they borrow our charging stations, I go around pulling them out of the wall when they leave because we're wasting. So a lot of change can happen by changing natural behaviors, becoming aware of our addiction. But the other part of it is we have to change what goes on in a building. So fresh air fans start to the roof of an apartment building, blows fresh air down. In those days, there's a little... Uh, opening under the doors, and the fresh air would come from the roof to the floor, the typical floor, the uh, corridor, push it underneath and push the smelly air outside. But it was either on or off. So I understood at five o'clock when people started to come home and cook why they needed 100% fresh air being pumped in. But at three o'clock in the morning, that machine is still going 100%. But nobody needs it. So we went and put in variable speed drives. We got our money back in three and a half years on buildings that my grandchildren were going to own. So after I paid back the capital investment, which by the way, at 33% or 30%, not a bad return on an unlevered basis. But after three and a half years, we, went, we got all our money back. And then the savings were forever. So that's how I got into this called a comprehensive natural resource management plan. And uh, the, rest is, uh, the rest is history. I left our family business for, as an operator in 2011. I started, uh, co-founded a venture capital firm called Green Soil Investments. We started uh, in Israel in food and ag tech, cutting out waste in those industries. And in uh, 2015, we launched one of the world's first prop tech funds. Nobody knew what prop tech was when we started. Uh, I didn't even understand what PropTech was. We knew that we we're going to make operating and, and running buildings and anything to do with real estate more efficient. Um, we've raised about $140 million between our two, first two funds uh, in the PropTech world, about 20-odd 20, 20 companies that we've invested in. We've had a few exits. It is venture capital. We've written off a few investments as well. One of the advantages we have is that my skill set is not as a venture capital investor, my skill set is as a user of real estate, how can we make that real estate more efficient? Uh, and now, in the second half of our second fund, we are totally committed to investing in technologies and services that help decarbonize the built for. Great intro. Thanks for that. It's a, you have such a unique perspective. You know, I, I've made the energy efficiency uh, push from the outside, but it seems like you've definitely made it from the inside. That's probably a lot easier to do uh, when you speak the language and, you know, maybe are also in the family <laughs> as well. One of the cool things that happened is as we started over the years doing more and more and more and more, and then this division that I set up for property management for income producing assets, 
took over and it became a corporate service where all of our new homes, all of our condos, all of our office buildings, all our new construction started to get this. We set up something called the Minto, uh, the Minto Green Team, but Green Champions. And almost 10% of our workforce responded with ideas on how we could reduce consumption of natural resources from little things like double-sided photocopying to packaging, just all these little things. And then we started to give out uh, bonuses for the savings. And I know there was one person in, in particular, he got like a $75,000 bonus in 2005, 2006, because he came up with this brilliant idea, right? And like we had these green champions, people that cared about our environment and about reducing consumption, we were able to empower our frontline staff. So the DNA of Minto even today, and I haven't worked there in about 12 years, and I'm no longer an owner in the family business, but because it started at the top, we were able to create a DNA of our company, a culture of our company, focused on reducing consumption of natural resources. Cool. So let's talk about where this is at today. So the way I understand it is the the building that your office or offices are housed in, you guys have set out to decarbonize that building and have purchased offsets um, to do so. Can you talk about that um, effort? We bought the building in um, 2021. Uh, and it was a pretty efficient building from an electrical uh, consumption point of view and the gas consumption. Um, and we've continued to encourage uh, the property manager to continue uh, along the path. And we have actually tried some new technologies in this building uh, as beta testing uh, before we actually would invest in a company, tried them out in the office building. But, you know, we weren't getting a, the goal we had was how do we get to net zero? And we were pretty close, but we weren't there. And we didn't really understand carbon credits and offsets and all that type of stuff. And then... Through green soil, we got exposed to Watt Carbon, to McGee, and, and um, I remember meeting him in California, and uh, we got very excited about his company, and we got excited because we could see the benefits that was going to bring to the whole industry, but as a user of real estate, this was a tool that would allow us in our own real estate to get to net zero, to bridge the gap between what we could do retrofitting a building economically, and then the balance of it by buying offsets. Uh, so we're thrilled to be one of the first customers uh, of, of What Carbon. And we're lucky our office building has maybe 1% vacancy. Um, and we do have some renewals coming up. So we thought it was important to get ahead of the game and start promoting yourself as a net zero building uh, based on what we do and then adding in what carbon's offsets. All right. So let's bring in you, McGee, now. Um, can you introduce yourself again for people that haven't heard your episode? We'll link to the first episode with you in the show notes. It kind of went through the history of the company, kind of what you guys are special at. And uh, we told the story of your career and that kind of thing. Um, so quick introduction for those of people that haven't heard that. Sure. Thanks, James. And uh, thanks, Alan and DR. I had been working uh, in the in the space of measurement and verification, building software for utilities to measure the impacts of their energy efficiency programs, and realized that 
this was sort of the big unlock for um, for decarbonization. Right, we've got roughly forty percent of emissions are traceable back to buildings, um, and of those, about seventy percent happen on the demand side. Uh, so we've you know we've invested heavily, in fact, in in renewables on this on the supply side. We've got large solar and wind farms going in left and right. If you fly across the country nowadays, fly over Iowa, all you see is wind farms. Uh, but you go into buildings and you see a lot of legacy fossil fuel equipment. And um, and like Alan, uh, most of us haven't chosen to have that equipment in our buildings. Um, it was it was there when we got there, uh, when when we bought the the place and. And oftentimes it's it's running pretty well, uh, and and so we don't necessarily want to tear it out in the moment, um, but we do have this aspiration of of trying to do our part to uh, reduce reduce emissions, and so uh, we we set up Block Carbon as a way to provide a pathway to climate action that ran through directly through the sector that's most responsible for the the largest sector responsible for emissions, and, and that's our buildings. So if you want to have an impact on climate change, there's no better place to start than in the built environment. Now, the reason why we're not really investing in buildings is kind of threefold. Number one is we don't really have great data systems to measure and manage building emissions. Uh, we typically focus on energy bills, but our utilities do a pretty poor job of uh, connecting the dots for us, maybe because they don't want us to really understand that, or maybe just because they can't. Uh, but nonetheless, um, it's really hard for even you know sophisticated real estate owners like Alan to even know what his carbon footprint is, um, much less you know what to do about it. Um, so for us, you know, it started with building a platform that was capable of tracking the hourly carbon emissions for every single building in the United States on demand and in real time, so that we actually had the data infrastructure we needed to do something about this problem. Now the second barrier is that our environmental commodity markets are mostly focused on carbon offsets from more nature-based solutions. So the idea is that we're going to be pumping this carbon out, but we, if we can just absorb enough of it, um, we'll be okay. And frankly, there's we can't plant enough trees uh, to solve this problem. And it's, it's kind of like if your bathtub was overflowing, sure, you want to put some towels on the floor to, to mop up the water, but first thing you want to do is turn off the tap. Uh, and so our goal was to kind of rebuild environmental commodity markets with a focus on turning off the tap. How do we eliminate carbon emissions from buildings in the first place? The third barrier is, um, Alan kind of uh, referenced it, is that while there are cash flows associated with doing most energy projects, um, decarbonization makes money, um, energy efficiency makes money, oftentimes there are upfront costs. And to do a project of any size requires capital. And um, most of us, if, if we want to do something like this, are taking out a home, in, a home equity line of credit or putting it on our credit card, or we might have enough savings uh, built up. And, and folks like DR are out there making the sell that, hey, we should be decarbonizing. But the, the financing costs oftentimes make it impossible to, to, to get these projects to pencil out. And so we really need to rebuild the capital stack for investing in buildings. Uh, part of that is by... Um, if we can reorganize our, our environmental commodity markets to make it actually valuable to decarbonize, to recognize the value of decarbonizing a building, um, then it can allow you know, a company like Allen's uh, to offset its emissions by helping a company like DR's actually go out and do projects. 
And so Alan's made an advanced market commitment, which means that he's said to DR, hey, if now not, not not to DR directly, we 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 aggregate these guys together. So he doesn't get to pick and choose exactly who he's getting it. But thanks to DR for for signing up. But he says, hey, if you can reduce carbon emissions, we'll make a commitment to buy uh, you know X number of tons of those emissions. But we're only going to pay for what you actually end up reducing. We're not just sort of out here funding on a, on a whim and a prayer or something like that. Um, and so we go to DR and we say, hey, we've got this commitment from, from Alan and others. And so if you can go do decarbonization projects in buildings, uh, we'll quantify those emissions reductions and pay you per ton of carbon that you're able to reduce. And what that allows DR to do is to go to his customers and say, hey, I've got a, a deal for you. If you do this, do this project with us, uh, we can take. Uh, and, and and it's up to Dr. to decide exactly how he wants to do this. So I'll let him speak to his his plan specifically. But he knows ahead of time that he'll get paid for the emission reductions, and so he can work that into his proposals to his customers. However, however, he it makes the most sense for him. His goal is to do more decarbonization, and he knows that the more of these projects that he can do. Uh, the, the the more his company will grow. And so that's our goal is to unlock building decarbonization at scale by providing the data infrastructure required to know that it's really happening for real, to rebuild our commodity markets so that we can actually value decarbonization as a thing in and of itself. And number three, rebuild the capital stack so it's easier for companies like DR to go out and, and do the good work that they're doing. Totally. And and when you talk about the others besides DR, so what types of companies are on that supply side of the marketplace? Yeah, great question. Um, there's kind of two pathways to to decarbonizing buildings. One is through the grid and the other is directly through the building. So through the grid, we can put on solar panels. We can enable demand response and, and you know, batteries and load shifting. And so We've got some companies that focus on putting a company we work with called Solar Holler puts on solar panels in homes in West Virginia. Uh, we've got companies like Leap that are enabling demand response on the building electrification side. Uh, obviously, Elephant Energy, Block Power um, is a great company that we work with out on the East Coast. Quick Carbon um, is helping to decarbonize homes on the West Coast. So really, you know, any type of, of company that's out decarbonizing buildings, whether it's directly through electrification or indirectly through uh, the grid, um, as it were, um, all of it is part and parcel of of how we achieve these goals. Okay. Well, one last question for you, McGee, before we bring DR in. The, can you talk about the calculation? So how does the technology work to actually quantify the amount of carbon savings? Yeah. So we, we require DR to submit meter data from his, from his buildings. And uh, we use measurement and verification protocols that are open source, uh, that are derived from decades of, of um, practitioners developing them in the world. So this is the work that I did at my last company, Recurve. We built um, open source software and, and methods so that you didn't just have to take my word for it. That this, you know, Alan, Alan trusts me, of course, but, you know, I don't want him to, to just, you know, <laughs> we want this to be like a P&L. Right where you can actually look and see like what's actually happening, and traceable back to the actual buildings where this where this uh, where the decarbonization happens. So, in fact, not only are we measuring uh, quite precisely using actual meter data, but we've set up an entire registry 
so that every gram, every watt hour of electricity that is that is saved um, is recorded and given a serial number. So as Alan goes and makes his claim for, hey, I've got a net zero building and some, you know, some customer or some you know, regulatory, you know, agency says, ah, we'll prove it. Well, he just dials into his Watt Carbon platform and pulls up the actual certificates uh, that are connected to the particular projects that got done um, so that all sides have confidence that the numbers are real. Okay, DR, welcome welcome to the show. Good to see you again. Um, can you give us a little of your background and talk about Elephant Energy and how and what sort of what you guys do? Yeah, thanks everyone. Uh, really excited to be here. So my background briefly is in private equity. I spent a decade helping build a firm called Vision Ridge Partners based in Boulder, Colorado, where the firm has a couple billion under management, all focused on investing in sustainable real assets. So we invested in and owned uh, direct solar projects, both in the U.S., Japan, Taiwan. We also owned EVgo, the fast charge network for electric vehicles, for a number of years. Um, we owned some ag and water assets in California. The firm now has a fleet of Norwegian electric ferries. So I spent a decade helping build this platform to try to invest in real uh, assets that were at the center and at the core of the energy transition where there was not technology risk, but where the unit economics, the fundamental math of the asset just made a lot of sense, where we could be deploying capital, be making a really good risk-adjusted return, um, and be playing a fundamental role in the energy transition by um, de-risking these assets and these platforms at scale. And I, I really enjoyed that work, did it for for a decade, and uh, accidentally got the startup bug by working closely with some of the entrepreneurs that we were investing in and supporting and decided to, I, I wanted to go build a platform that took a lot of those same principles um, to the market and, and do it in a way that was going to have a lot of impact. So I started Elephant Energy uh, with a good friend of mine who'd spent his career as a clean tech operator, uh, building solar projects, building solar manufacturing plants, uh, deploying autonomous electric vehicles. So Whole, whole range of different types of um, uh, deploying those assets. And he and I, between our two backgrounds, have, have figured out what is the asset where you don't have to take a lot of risk on, where you understand the unit economics, where the technology is proven, how do you go scale that? Um, and so that's really the, the idea behind Elephant is how do we make a really big impact by using the tools of capitalism to accelerate the energy transition? We're trying a bunch of different business models, uh, working with consumers to try to make their homes more climate friendly. That's what we wanted to do. We had a bunch of ideas and we tried a bunch of them and all of those ideas failed. <laughs> and then the, the thing that um, our, our homeowners kept saying to us, though, was, what about heat pumps? Tell us about heat pumps. How do we install a heat pump? <laughs> and so we decided to listen to that customer feedback. And I had a 17-year-old centrally ducted gas furnace in my house in Colorado. And we said, how hard can it be? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll deploy a heat pump. And it turns out it was really hard to deploy a heat pump. <laughs> Every single part of the deploy heat pump was hard. Uh, what OEM, what technology were we going to use? How could we find a qualified vetted contractor? What rebates would we qualify for? Did the contractor also have an electrician? Would that be permitted? Uh, the electrician come in the cost. Um, 
How do we know in Colorado it gets really cold? How do we know that the equipment's going to work year round? So just every single thing, you know, two of us are former clean tech operators and, and builders, and we were really struggling to deploy one heat pump. And we said, if two of us were effectively unemployed trying to build a business, if we can't figure out how to deploy this heat pump. You know, your average homeowner is is no uh, is completely um, out of luck. It's it's going to be impossible. They've got jobs. They've got kids. You know, it's going to be challenging. So that that was our aha moment of the world needs a platform that can make upgrading your home to be more climate friendly uh, in a way that is simple, that lets you do it confidently, that you know you're going to be warmed in the winter with and, and it's going to be installed at a high quality. And that is simple, right? One simple transaction, uh, a frictionless purchase experience where everything's taken care of, you've maximized all the financial rebates and incentives available to you, um, and that it's a good, fair price. If you bring price, simplicity, and confidence all together, you can unlock an interesting business opportunity. That was our initial insight um, since then at Elephant Energy um, over the past year and 10 months. We have upgraded about 300 homes in uh, Colorado, and we recently launched our Massachusetts market as well, um, where we install heat pumps, heat pump water heaters, we do EV chargers, we do insulation, weatherization upgrades. And again, with that sort of very simple formula of how do we uh, make this the most affordable, simple, and confident purchase and upgrade a homeowner can do to make their home more climate friendly. Um- I have been one of those people that has tried to install a heat pump, and then I second you. It's not easy. Um, so can you talk about, in, t- in context with this marketplace conversation, how is it helping homeowners to get this money coming from the demand side or the buyer side, like Alan is providing into that pool of buyer money? How does that help you you decarbonize these homes faster? Yeah. So let's talk about price. So a heat pump immediately from a decarbonization perspective provides about a 25 to 30 percent carbon reduction for an average home here in Colorado, even though we have a bunch of coal on the grid. Uh, It's so much more efficient that replacing a gas appliance with an electric one reduces the carbon intensity of that home. So there's a very obvious decarbonization story to be told here, especially as the grid gets greener. But that comes at the expense of price. Heat pump installs right now without any rebates or financial incentives are more expensive than replacing a gas furnace plus AC. There do exist right now a number of rebates and financial incentives. And in all the markets that we operate in, that actually brings the cost of a heat pump down below the cost of a gas furnace plus AC if you're going to be replacing both things. So there's a positive economic story for most homeowners when they need to retire their gas furnace and their AC They can do so at a lower cost, both upfront and operating, with a heat pump. Um, That being said, it's still more expensive than if you're going to do furnace alone or an AC alone. And so what we're doing as a business is we're trying to be very focused on that North Star of how do you create the simplest, frictionless install for homeowners. We have to decarbonize. We have to defossil fuel. Uh, 60 plus million homes in the U.S. and we have to do that as fast as possible. Only way that happens is if it's been brain dead economic decision every single time. And so we see platforms like Watt Carbon um, from the purchases that Alan is making 
as a really critical component to be continuing to drive the cost down um, for people to take advantage of the fact that they are decarbonizing, they are upgrading their homes to be more climate friendly, and every every little piece that we can assemble along the way to make that uh, drive that price farther down to make it simpler and easier for homeowners to decarbonize, the better uh, the business we're going to build and the faster we're going to decarbonize and accelerate electrification. Awesome. Makes a ton of sense. Um, let's just talk between the four of us now. Um, basically, the summary is if people are sort of thick in the school or they're doing something else while they're listening to this, buyers like Alan are throwing money into the pool. McGee's sitting in the middle of this, right? Making sure that the savings happen, make, calculating the carbon, assembling the supply side. DR and Elephant Energy are one of the suppliers on the marketplace that is actually doing the decarbonization. Um, do you guys have any reflections upon this conversation and that now that we've sort of gone through the whole life cycle of the, the transaction? I'm just thrilled to, to sort of sit here and listen to the two of them together, you know, talking about this is, you know, Alan wants to make a difference in the world, right? Has been committed to this for decades. Uh, DR has been figuring out how to make a difference in the world. Uh, but Alan could never help go help people install heat pumps in their homes in, in Colorado. And, uh, and DR doesn't have, you know, isn't sitting on, uh, on a bunch of commercial real estate, uh, either. And, and, and so, but the earth doesn't care, right? The climate doesn't care where these emission reductions come from. Uh, so if Alan can, can help accelerate the decarbonization of buildings in Colorado, and maybe somebody in Colorado can help accelerate the decarbonization of buildings in Toronto, if we can pick off the ones that are in the moment ready for a replacement, that's going to be the difference maker. We, we replaced 20,000 20, fossil fuel heaters and water heaters every single day in the United States with another fossil fuel heater or water heater, 20,000 a day, every single day. That will trap that that are going to lock in emissions for the next you know thirty years each, right? That's that's billions of tons of CO two that we're just guaranteeing. The thing is, is we've got it, we've got, and, and we're on we're on sort of a three hundred year time frame right now for decarbonizing buildings, and we have about thirty, like honestly, right? So so what we really need is you know more Allens and more DRs uh, tackling this problem so that we can reach those customers in the moment in which they're ready to make that replacement and make sure that they're opting for the lower carbon option. Alan, what would you say to the the folks out there that are looking at their offset options? You know, they've gone through this decarbonization roadmap in their buildings and they're saying, okay, we need to, we need to offset something here to get to net zero. Like you said, what would you say to them in terms of this being an option for them? When I was, you know, marketing, sustainable condos that, you know, in 2008, 9, 10, we called it greenwashing. There were a lot of people making claims that were bullshit, and we knew we were doing the real thing. And from what I've been, some of the readings over the last few years is that a lot of multinationals were buying offsets, probably more plant-based offsets, without truly understanding the life cycle benefit or lack of benefit as in the, in the later years, you, you invest in a tree farm, then you cut down the trees uh, after 18 years uh, or whatever the growth is. So what I really like about focusing on the built form, I think is great. 
uh, and, and the verification tools that McGee has come up with so that with confidence, when I buy that offset, and if I ever get audited, it's there. I think back on, on the millions of dollars that we spent in our buildings and the reduction in consumption that we've done over the last 20 years, 25 years. We know it, but it's never really been verified. I wish Watt Carbon was here 20 years ago, right? And, and so we could verify what we did in our portfolio get would have financially helped us with the returns we were getting because we just said old equipment and buildings and, and all that type of stuff. I'm not sure. I mean, it would have helped the financial returns back then. If things were a lot, utilities were a lot less expensive, paybacks were quicker. But I, I really wish we had Watt Carbon from day one. I, I wish in 1998 when I said, no way, we can control utilities. I wish we had a Watt Carbon shoulder to shoulder with us uh, that would have helped us verify it all and, and made the economics better for us. And I could have as much of a green champion that I personally have been. You know, we I think we could have created a lot more green champions had Watt Carbon existed. So um, I remember when we when we met McGee in California a couple of years ago, he didn't need our money. He didn't need our, our venture capital. He had all the money lined up. Uh, and I don't want to use the word bank, but we we almost had, you know we had to convince him that that we as green soil because we understood the built form and we understood what goes into the construction of the built form that we could add uh, a value to a uh, as a venture capital that just straight money couldn't offer and and we're grateful that uh, McGee agreed with us. Uh, only gave us a little sliver because that's all uh, he could give us. But, you know, our team has been working very closely with them. And um, here in Canada, we have a lot of carbon taxes uh, starting and uh, it's only going to uh, increase exponentially between now and 2030. So it ju it's just good business. And to be able to safely say McGee's technology, what carbon's technology verifies for us that it is really a true savings, I think goes a long way to creating credibility in the work that DR does. It, it's going to enable him and, and, and his peers in the industry to better convince those that are sitting on the sideline that now's the time to do it. Awesome. Well, thank you to all three of you for, for coming on the show and explaining this complex concept. I think you all have done a great job of sort of simplifying. Um, decarbonization is a complex thing, and this is not a simple transaction that we've outlined here. Um, and you guys have sort of demystified it a little bit. So thank you. One other reflection, James, just before we wrap up is I think what's so great about what McGee and Walk Carbon are doing is Alan's painted a very complex portrait of how big real assets are operated in the real world, right? Decarbonization can't be done with software alone. It, it, it requires software, innovative business models, and real assets, real steel in the ground actually decarbonize it, right? And that gets so lost so many times in the decarbonization conversation where, you know, what about a software solution for this? What about a software solution for that? The real world's harder. <laughs> this, this real infrastructure in the world is so hard to decarbonize and it requires 
coming together in these uh, complex new business models that McGee's unlocking to really um, accelerate the decarbonization because the status quo is not going to cut it. So I've really appreciated the insights from from everybody in this team sharing um, just a little bit about what it took to get to the point where they can understand how to make their side of it all really simple to accelerate to broader cause. Great, great insights, DR. I, I think it's it's it really paints to the like, yes, you do have options here. You might not be able to you know, do this two-year payback retrofit. You might not be able to get software installed right away. You might, you know, all the excuses are there, but, you know, there are a bunch of different options here and, and Walk Carbon can, can help with it when you run out, of, run out of options. So, all right. Thank you all for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Okay, friends, thank you for listening to this episode. As we continue to grow our global community of changemakers, we need your help. For the next couple of months, we're challenging our listeners to share a link to their favorite Nexus episode on LinkedIn with a short post about why you listen. It would really, really help us out. Make sure to tag us in the post so we can see it. Have a good one.